you walk down the street and you see someone that has a difference. You, we, and just if we don't have that experience, we only see that person. We have two options. We either stare at that person, but we know staring is bad, so we look away. Well, all of my friends for the last 20 years, they've taught me that that looking away sometimes is even more painful than the staring. That's Rick Guadotti. He's a photographer and the director of Positive Exposure, an organization that helps others see beauty in people with differences. He might not face stigmatization directly, but through the people he photographs, he has gotten an inside look on the feelings and emotions that result from being judged by others. Hi, I'm Julia Seabode, and this is Cityscape. Michelle Hammer has lived with stigma for much of her life. She's the founder of a company called Schizophrenic NYC, and she has schizophrenia herself. She's extremely open to talking about her mental illness and schizophrenia, but that hasn't always been the case. When I was 18, I was told that I was bipolar, but when I was 22, I was told I was schizophrenic. And at first I was like super upset about it. I, I was like, what? No one's going to love me. Oh, no. So I go out to like dinner with like three of my college roommates and I just go, guys, like I just want to let you know I found that I'm schizophrenic. And seriously, the conversation went like this. My friend on the right just goes, I thought that's what you had the entire time. And he goes, uh, that could have not been more obvious. And then my other friend goes, yeah, we told you that. So, I mean, if my best friends already knew it about me and didn't care, why should I care about what other people think about me? And that's what inspired her to start her company, Schizophrenic NYC, three years ago. With experience in graphic design, Hammer created a clothing company to break stigmas against mental health. Her first designs were featured on t-shirts and buttons, all inspired by the Rorschach test. The Rorschach test, also known as the inkblot test, is a psychological test doctors use to study a person's emotions or personality. Hammer wanted her customers to see it in a unique way. When you kind of get a schizophrenic person to just look at that plain black one, they're going to see it from kind of, you know, a different perspective. Everyone just looks at life from a different perspective. So... I kind of switched up the patterns and the colors in the test so everyone's now forced to look at it from a different perspective, getting you to think differently, starting a discussion, because only through discussion can you try to reduce or end stigma. And for Hammer, a big part of reducing the stigma is stepping out of the shadows and being blunt about it. She doesn't think it's necessary to overthink the proper versus improper words, and she's comfortable with the term schizophrenic. You have to use that person-first language, like person with schizophrenia, and... I didn't even, I was calling myself schizophrenic for over a year before a friend of mine's friend who was a social worker said something to me and she said something like, oh, you're bipolar. I go, no, I'm schizophrenic. And she just goes, oh, you're supposed to say you're a person with schizophrenia, not a person who's schizophrenic. It's the nice way. And I was like, so have I been insulting myself for like the past year and a half? I don't understand. So, I mean, if I'm okay calling myself schizophrenic, why does it matter if other people don't want me to call myself that? I identify as that. And I mean, people can think whatever they want, but I feel like like I've gotten like comments on like Instagram, like, I'm trying to teach you that schizophrenic is a bad word because I'm a social worker and I know these things. Well, it's like, well, I'm the schizophrenic person and I know what offends me. So leave me alone. By referring to herself as schizophrenic, Hammer hopes to get rid of some of the taboo associated with schizophrenia and mental health in general. That's one of the main goals of her company. According to the New York State Department of Health, one in five New Yorkers experience symptoms of a mental health issue every year. But Hammer says many feel the need to hide it. 
Not only do many customers that check out Hammer's pop-up shop know someone living with a mental illness, they often ask questions and are eager to learn more. A lot of people want to know, like, my history with schizophrenia. When did it start? Anything? Have you, there are a lot of people who are like, have you ever been in a psych ward before? Like, how did your family react? What, what do people think of your pop-up shop? How does everyone, just how do people respond to what you're doing is pretty much a lot of the big questions. How does, how does the public respond? And how do you deal, how do I deal with everything that I'm doing right now? It's a lot of questions like that. Or a lot of people are asking me advice. A lot of people that say, like, oh, my son is schizophrenic, but he's not doing as well as you. How can I get him to do as well as you? And I'm like, that's like one of the hardest questions in the whole world. If I had an answer for how to pick, fix somebody with mental illness, like I'd be a really rich person because that's an impossible question to really answer. Hammer explains that sometimes her shop is met with confrontation. Although some customers ask inquisitive questions, she thinks others are unwilling to learn and hear more. There recently was a guy who came over and then said he doesn't believe in any kind of medication for anything, no medication at all. It doesn't work, and that's just, just not good. And I said, you can just keep walking. Yeah. I had another woman once who came up to me, and she said, you know, I don't think schizophrenia is real. And I was like, well, why not? And she goes, you know, can't you just stop talking to yourself? And I was like, well, uh, I know I tried to explain, you know, it's kind of a delusion, you know, you're kind of like there, you don't really realize where you are, you're kind of just talking, you don't really understand. And she just goes, but can't you just stop talking to yourself? And I was like, no, you don't realize where you are, you're kind of hallucinating, it's like a delusion, you don't realize you're doing it, but why can't you just stop talking to yourself? I'm like, you can't. She goes, you can't? And I'm like, no. And then she goes, oh, okay. And I was like, all right, go, go away now, like, go away. Like, if it was that easy, then there would be no people with schizophrenia. Hammer says these people only add to the stigmas of schizophrenia, which is exactly what she hopes to avoid. One way in which Hammer fights stigmas is by donating many of the proceeds of her shop to organizations that fight homelessness in New York City. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 20 to 25 percent of the homeless population in the United States suffers from some form of severe mental illness. The stigma in New York City is a lot because of all of the homeless people there. You see a lot of schizophrenic homeless people, so people equate that with, that's like, that's schizophrenia. It's that homeless guy over there. But you don't know to look at a person over there who's having a perfectly fine day, and they have schizophrenia. So you only see the the one side, because nobody else is out there going, hi, I have schizophrenia, and I'm having a great day. I'm drinking coffee, having breakfast, now I'm going to work. You know? In New York City, that's why there is so much stigma and people don't want to talk about maybe their mental health issues because they don't want to be related. They don't want to be put in the same like box as the people who are homeless and just yelling or being dangerous. Hammer says while New York might seem frightening and overwhelming for some people, it's the best place for her. She embraces the loud and lively city. I mean, <laughs> you're going to be schizophrenic anywhere. New York City's a really good place because if you're talking to yourself walking down the street, everyone just assumes you're on your phone. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. It, you know, it works out well. And then when I think I hear my name being called, it's just loud noises all over the place. You never know. Who knows? Maybe my name is being called or maybe it's not. Or when I look somewhere and I think I see people that I know and then I realize it's not people that I know, I know, it was a hallucination, but it's okay because it's New York City. There's a million people. But Hammer says that doesn't mean you should ignore someone who might be experiencing a challenge. Sometimes you just got to be patient with someone with schizophrenia. Sometimes things are hard to process. I mean, cognitive skills aren't always the the easiest thing to deal with when you have schizophrenia. You can get told instructions and just completely not understand them. 
get confused a lot or not being able to read social cues. So if somebody with schizophrenia just doesn't get what you're talking about, just be patient. Maybe describe it in a different way. But don't treat people any differently. Don't try to baby people. Don't think you have to act differently and just let people live. Rick Guidotti, founder of Positive Exposure, shares that mentality. Since 1998, he's been photographing children and young adults with the goal of seeing the richness of human diversity. Their motto? Change how you see, see how you change. Before creating the organization Positive Exposure, Guidotti started off as a high fashion photographer. He worked regularly with companies such as Yves Saint Laurent and models like Cindy Crawford. It was wonderful and exciting, one traveling around the world and shooting, but the other thing was really frustrating because I was always told who was beautiful. And as an artist, I don't see beauty. I never saw beauty just on covers of magazines as defined by a magazine or an editor. I see beauty around me. I see beauty constantly. It was only after Guidotti was leaving work one day and saw a young woman with albinism that he realized he needed to change the way beauty was represented in photographs. He had never seen a model that looked like her, and he wanted to learn more. He went online to research, but was unhappy with what he found. I couldn't find anything positive. I found very negative images, very traditional medical-type photographs of kids up against walls in doctor's offices, usually naked with those black bars across their eyes. They were medical photographs and dehumanizing. There were not images of that gorgeous kid. So then I set out to kind of figure out how can we change that? How can we find images? How can we create images that challenge stigma but celebrate the beauty of human diversity, celebrating beginning with albinism? So he went ahead and found another young woman with albinism to photograph. The very first girl that I walked in, that I photographed, walked into the studio, so beautiful, gorgeous kid, but literally standing there with her shoulders hunched, head down, no eye contact. There was, this kid had, was tortured and abused and, and bullied every single day because of her difference. The stigma that this kid experienced every single day because of her albinism left her with zero self-esteem. And just the day before, though, on the same set here in the studio, I had photographed Sydney Crawford for a Revlon shoot and I thought you know out of respect for this gorgeous kid I want to photograph her like I would any supermodel so the fan the music came on and I I literally just held up a mirror to her and I said look at yourself you're magnificent and this kid looked in the mirror and all that stigma disappeared she looked in the mirror and she saw what I saw and all of a sudden her hands went on her hips her head went up in the air and she lit up with a smile that pretty much lit up New York City it was incredible to see that change this first young girl inspired Gwadaudi to go forward and create the organization Positive Exposure. Determined to find more models with albinism, he teamed up with NOAA, the National Organization for Albinism and Hypopigmentation. NOAA is a leader in developments, education, and research about albinism. Well, the organization started in the early 80s, and I think it was just generally, um, you know, there were people with albinism who felt there was a need that, to spread awareness. That's Sonia Harris. She's a secretary on the board of directors at NOAA and has albinism herself. You know, growing up, if anything's different, someone has something to say about it. And since albinism happens to be something that's a very physical thing, something that you can see, it can create a lot of comments or uh, responses from people. And I think the, the idea of educating people about the condition can help to maybe combat some of that. Harris was born and raised in the Bronx. She says growing up with albinism had her questioning her identity at times. Because I'm black, because I'm African-American, people will say you're not black. 
So that caused confusion when I was growing up because I would come home and be like, Mom, like, are you sure that, <laughs> that I'm black? Um, so just as a child, those things could be confusing. Being out in the world and just having people impose their opinions or feelings upon you as a child is a difficult thing to experience. Even as a child, though, Harris says she stayed true to herself and did not feel the need to conform to fit in with other kids. She says she was able to foster her confidence as a young girl and never resisted who she is or what she looks like. She encourages all kids to focus on their strengths rather than their differences. I've been able to rely on my intellect a lot, which was something that, you know, was important growing up, you know, going to school and education. And so I was always confident in that. I was able to identify and explore a lot of my strengths from a young age. It's invaluable for you to cultivate whatever your strengths are because that when when you are able to identify your gifts, cultivate them, and pursue them, that gives you confidence. But despite this confidence, Harris says she often felt irritated that other people didn't understand her and her condition. She didn't like having to continuously explain herself to others who were unfamiliar with albinism. I remember one time just feeling so frustrated to keep going over these things. And I remember saying to my mom, you know, I don't want to have to explain myself to everybody. Like, I just want to walk down the street. I don't want to have to have a full-on conversation explaining myself. And she would always talk to me about teachable moments. Or if that's your opportunity, that's your opportunity. Use that as a teachable moment. So I fought some about explaining myself or being a leader or a teacher. But if I can offer something and it's of value, then maybe that's one of my gifts. As Harris developed her gift of talking about albinism and educating other people, she landed a spot working with Noah. For the past 10 years, she's attended NOAA conferences with her family and friends and educated others about albinism. Harris says the way to understand and reduce stigma is to change the way people talk about albinism. That's another thing just with regard to the word albino versus saying a person with albinism and the significance there. There's some debate in the albinism community with regard to whether people care or don't care about it. I just really feel strongly that when you're naming something that thing, it becomes a thing as opposed to a person. And I think that that helps to dehumanize a person. So I prefer a person with albinism. And Harris would also prefer if Hollywood changed its perception of people with albinism. She says for too long they've been portrayed as mythical creatures, and that's wrong. It is important in Hollywood that there would just be a figure or a character where it was just a person being a person and they happen to be a part of that community, not that it has to be, oh, that thing over there, which is what I've seen most frequently. And that brings us back to photographer Rick Guidaudi. His positive exposure project aims to spotlight albinism in a way that removes any negative connotation. As time went on and Guidaudi's photographs gained more traction with Noah's influence, Life magazine contacted him to do a piece called Redefining Beauty. And that kind of changed everything. It, changed, it was a game changer specifically because there was, for the first time, there was beauty in albinism. And when Life magazine came out, they quoted a lot of our great models for that particular article. And the, and the quotes were really specifically about their stigma that they experienced. After the Life magazine piece came out, Guidotti received an award from the Genetic Alliance, an organization that works to transform the health industry. They advocate for awareness, education, 
and drug development for numerous genetic conditions. The Genetic Alliance had a new project for him to encompass all differences into his photographs. And when they offered me this award, they just, you know, they looked at the photographs of the albinism and the images from around the world and said, these are beautiful, but there's a universal message here. This isn't just about albinism. This is about all difference. So would you come to some of our other family conferences and celebrate their differences? I'm like, great idea. But again, looking at all those medical textbooks, photographs of terrifying images, images of, of sadness, of despair. I'm thinking, you know, the, you know albinism was easy compared to some of these other conditions that were featured in these medical textbooks. The one thing that I found when I started those new collaborations was that there was always humanity first and foremost. And humanity is exactly what Guadotti hopes to express, regardless of genetic differences. He says he thinks New York City is the perfect place to begin to change mindsets. I think in this city we're, we're aware of diversity, but we're also aware of the varieties of stigma. And I think it's, it's the wonderful thing about being in this city is that we have so many opportunities to learn, to see beyond stigma, to understand, to evaluate stigma, but really reflect on that and look at that. We have so many opportunities here, and it's, and it's and. And it's, it's almost as, a, as a, a call to action, being in this city. Parenting expert Olivia Bergeron agrees. She owns Mommy Groove Therapy and Parent Coaching. She has experience with parenting in the Big Apple, one of the most diverse places in the world. You know, I have three kids of my own, and when we ride the subway, sometimes they, you know, they point out somebody looks different from them, and they say something out loud. Um, and and how, do you, how do you handle that in a way that models respect? And I think that... First of all, we need to manage our own emotions about it. And so if you're embarrassed or you get angry about it, uh, you're getting triggered, then that's not a great place from which to teach your children about empathy and um, about that diversity. And we live in one of the most diverse places on earth, right? So, of course, we're kind of we're bumping up against people that are vastly different from who we are. And, and it's a great opportunity to, to show your children the great the richness in the world. Bergeron believes parents must be patient with their children rather than quick to react. She explains children should not be punished for their questions. Parents should answer them slowly and respectfully. I think that you know, welcoming their questions about, about diversity, about people and, and cultures that are different from their own. Um, I do think that, you know, again, living in New York City, you have ample opportunities to point out the many different people that are here. Over the past decade, a new style of parenting has emerged and gained attention. With this progressive style, parents allow their children to make their own choices rather than guiding and disciplining them. When it comes to teaching kids about stigma and diversity, Bergeron believes that kids need support and guidance. I think some people confuse uh, this new style of parenting, as you mentioned, you know, the authoritative style of having you know, no limits or being kind of loosey-goosey about things, but that, that's not really the case. Bergeron says it's okay to have high expectations for your kids, but the old adage always holds true, lead by example. Cityscape is a production of WFUV News. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed as WFUV Cityscape. I'm Julia Sebode. Our executive producer is George Bodarkey. Thanks for listening.